Uh, it is kind of weird, though, because it's just so different when it's full one Sunday and the people are gone. But it's much more relaxed. I noticed, you know, Stefan's up playing the piano this morning. He's got his feet up. <laughs> He's just, you know, kicking back. So it's, uh, it's good to be at church on vacation. It uh, still takes me a bit to get used to it, though, because it's just, it's just different. Uh, we're glad you're here this morning. And uh, we do want to look into God's Word. Today, of course, if you didn't look at your calendar or are not uh, up to speed with what today is, does anybody know what today is? Palm Sunday. It's interesting, it's interesting I asked, which means it's Easter next Sunday, by the way. Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday. Um, I asked uh, some of our Thai staff uh, if they knew what today was. And apparently, Palm Sunday is not a big tradition, at least in some Thai churches. They had no idea what that was, <laughs> interestingly enough. But we do want to remember, as we prepare really for this time of commemorating, uh, the focus of Jesus' ministry, which was, of course, the cross. And uh, this marks the beginning of the week of his passion. And so as we do that, we're going to look this morning in John chapter 11 and 12. And uh, as we prepare to do that, let's take a moment and pray as we, uh, as we look at Christ and his journey to the cross. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would uh, help us this morning to uh, see who you really are and to... to see in a fresh and new way what our relationship with you is really about. Father, we are just so thankful that you loved us so much that you sent your Son, your only and most precious and beloved Son, to die for us, to go to the cross for us. And we pray that you would just make that truth a reality that shapes everything in our life and uh, that conforms us to its mission and its message. We ask that as we look in your word this morning that your spirit would teach us uh, that it wouldn't just be me speaking but it would be really you opening up our hearts and our minds to your story of the gospel. And so we commit our time to you now this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, We're going to look at the story of uh, Jesus oftentimes called triumphal entry, his entry into Jerusalem. But I want to back up a bit and uh, really begin the story um, where we left off last week. And if you're here last Sunday, Arjuna preached a great message from John chapter 11, the raising of, of Lazarus. And I want to pick up where that story ends off because it really transitions into this event where Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And to really get the whole picture, we need to understand what's going on. So let me read beginning in verse 45 of chapter 11. Many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this happen, that is, the raising of Lazarus. But some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the leading priests and Pharisees called the high council together to discuss the situation. What are we going to do, they asked each other. This man certainly performs many miraculous signs. If we leave him alone... The whole nation will follow him, and then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said, 
How can you be so stupid? Why should the whole nation be destroyed? Let this one man die for the people. This prophecy that Jesus should die for the entire nation came from Caiaphas in his position as high priest. He didn't think of it himself. He was inspired to say it. It was a prediction that Jesus' death would not be for Israel only, but for the gathering together of all the children of God scattered around the world. So from that time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus' death. As a result, Jesus stopped his public ministry among the people and left Jerusalem. He went to a place in the wilderness uh, in the village of Ephraim and stayed there with his disciples. It was now almost time for the celebration of Passover. And many people from the country arrived in Jerusalem several days early so they could go through the cleansing ceremony before the Passover began. They wanted to see Jesus. And as they talked in the temple, they asked each other, What do you think? Will he come for Passover? Meanwhile, the leading priests and Pharisees had publicly announced that anyone seeing Jesus must report him immediately so they could arrest him. This morning I want to look, as we look at this this story of Jesus' triumphal entry, at uh, at who Jesus was to these people. And uh, a good question to ask yourself as you reflect on these words is, who is Jesus to you? You know, who is Jesus really to you? Uh, And we're going to look at... uh, how different people saw Jesus. And the first group we want to look at is the Pharisees and the, uh, the High Council of Jerusalem, of Israel. Uh, they saw Jesus basically as a troublemaker. And uh, they saw him as a threat to the security and peace of their nation. And I love the line, you know, Jesus just raises Lazarus from the dead. Incredible miracle. I mean, this guy wasn't just partly dead or, you know, mostly dead. He was pretty much all dead. Four days in the tomb is pretty dead wrapped up in the clothes, sealed up. I mean, he was just dead. You know, Jesus had raised a little girl earlier, and he'd raised some other people. But they only been, you know, they were still warm, you know. This guy was not even, I mean, he was dead. And so it was a huge, huge miracle. And uh, it was one that was witnessed by many people. And uh, I don't know about you, but if, if, you're, if you're out there in Bethany, and, you know, they roll back the, the, the stone, and this guy who's been dead for four, four days walks out of the tomb in his grave clothes, I would be pretty impressed, okay? I'd be going, this, this Jesus, I and mean, this is no normal person. This has got to be God. Uh, nobody else could do something like that, okay? Well, it's interesting, when you read this story, though, it says that many who heard him believed. Many who were with Mary, many who saw this event, saw what happened. They believed, but not everybody. Amazingly, there were some who did not believe. And in fact, what they did, they were tattletales. What they did is they ran out to the Pharisees and they said, Oh, oh, you would not believe what Jesus is doing. He is going around raising dead people. Can you believe it? Okay? And the Pharisees are going, oh, oh my word, can you believe it? What are we going to do with this guy? He is nothing but trouble. Dead people aren't even safe. You know, he's going to just mess things up. Right? And you think, what in the world were these Pharisees thinking? Where was their head? Now here they had been asking, they'd been begging, they'd been saying, Jesus, if you're God, if you're who you claim to be, 
Show us a sign. Well, what more of a sign could you want? I mean, what were these guys looking for? He raised a guy seriously dead and brought him back to life. What more of a sign could they be looking for? And yet they were so blinded and so stubbornly resistant to the gospel and to Jesus' message that they became angry and indignant. And it's interesting, you know, nowhere do they discredit his miracle. Nowhere does it say, oh, surely, you know, people were confused. Okay, the Pharisees didn't, didn't discredit or in any way disclaim Jesus' miracle. You know, there are people, there's a movement in the world today, kind of the Jesus movement, and people trying to basically rewrite the Gospels and say, you know, Jesus' disciples didn't really think he was God, and Jesus himself didn't really think he was God. He got made up later by the church, about 300 years later. Well, okay, here's Jesus' enemies, people who wanted to kill him, affirming his miracles. Okay, this stuff wasn't made up later. Here's people who are very much dead set against Jesus, ready to kill him, affirming, yeah, this guy has incredible power. He's doing amazing miracles. And not just that, but he says they're doing all, he's doing all kinds of signs. Certainly he performs many miraculous signs and wonders. This guy, the world is not safe. You know, There's not a sick person around that's safe with Jesus. Because he's healing them all. He's giving blind people sight, raising dead. And their response was, we've got to put a stop to this. And you think, what were these guys thinking? You know, why were they so worried about Jesus? And why were they so outraged? Um, and they said, what are we going to do about this? We've got to put a stop to this. Uh, what do you do with a guy that's like this? And of course, you, you get to the real issue here. The issue wasn't that Jesus was raising dead people and healing sick. The issue is that people, because of his miracles, people were starting to follow him. And uh, it was the job of the High Council of Jerusalem, a council of 70 members that were kind of the legislative governing body over Israel. It was their job to ensure peace between Israel and the Roman Empire. And of course, they were under Roman rule. And the job was really quite simple. No riots, you know, no rebellions, no coups, okay? No coups allowed. Uh, just stick to your own business, have your own little worship, have your own little nation, you know, mind your own business, and the Romans would leave you alone. But any time a great leader comes along that starts attracting attention, starts attracting followers, that for them spelled trouble. And in all fairness, the Pharisees and this ruling body, uh, the Sanhedrin, were looking out for the national security and interest of the country. They saw themselves as protectors of the peace and security of Israel. And what they saw in Jesus was not a guy doing miracles and, and bringing kingdom salvation, bringing the good news of the kingdom. What they saw was a guy who was a threat to the national security of Israel, and they felt they needed to do something about it. And so uh, <coughs> Caiaphas makes this prophetic statement. Don't you, says, you, you guys are idiots. Don't you see it is better for one man to die than for the, the security and safety of Israel to be compromised. He said the decision is easy. We, we ask Jesus. He has got to go. And you know, later Jesus went through a trial. He was put on trial. He stood before this council and other councils and Pilate. But the decision had already been made. They decided in spite of justice, no justice, in spite of whatever, Jesus had to go. 
because he was a threat to national security. And feeling they were working in the best interest of the country, they resolved and determined on that day to kill Jesus. And they began plotting and thinking about how they would do that. And in that moment, Jesus' death was determined. Um, you know, uh, they basically saw, they said, saw Jesus as a troublemaker. And really, is Jesus just to you and I, is he just a troublemaker? You know, we look at the Pharisees and Sadducees and they were protecting their national interests and they ultimately killed Jesus. And we tend to see those guys as the bad guys. But really, I know a lot of people today who really see Jesus in pretty much the same light. To them, Jesus is just a troublemaker who comes along and turns your world inside out. And that's what they were afraid of. They didn't want a guy coming along turning their safe and secure world inside out. They lived to to keep the status quo, to protect peace at all costs. The problem was that they were trusting in man to accomplish that, not in God. And so when God himself sent the perfect messenger of peace, the one who would bring reconciliation between God and man, they rejected him because they were looking to human solutions for peace and safety and security. And they saw Jesus as just a troublemaker who messed up their lives. You know, I wonder how many people, that's really what they see Jesus as. You know, and maybe you're here this morning and you would say, honestly, when I think about Christianity and this whole Jesus thing, to me, Jesus is just a guy who comes along and tells you, tells you to change everything in your life and wants to turn your world upside down and just wants to meddle in all your affairs. And all you want is your peaceful, quiet, simple little life and you see Jesus as a troublemaker who messes that up. Um, and that's pretty much where the Pharisees were. It wasn't that they were evil or bad people. They were people who took their responsibility very seriously. And they couldn't reconcile how Jesus and their responsibilities could come together. Because they weren't really looking for God as the source of their security. And in fact, because of that, because they looked to man-made solutions, because they looked to Rome and to people and their own wisdom to bring security, uh, a very few short years after this, 40 years later, the very thing that they dreaded happened. The Romans came, they crushed Israel, they destroyed Jerusalem, they leveled the temple. Everything they were trying to protect, they lost. Because their hope was in their own wisdom and in the Roman government, and not in Jesus. And so the thing that they thought they preserved, they ultimately lost. Um, I think a lot of people keep Jesus at a distance because they're convinced that's all Jesus is, is a troublemaker. And the truth is, he is a troublemaker. When Jesus comes into the world, he turned it upside down. When he comes into your life, he will turn it upside down. If you allow Jesus to become Lord in your life, he is going to turn you inside out. But it is not to wreck your life, although we may feel that way. It is not to rob us of peace and security, but it's actually to do the exact opposite. Only Jesus knows our future and knows how to protect it. Only Jesus has the power and compassion to make sure that we walk in his safety. Only he knows our future and can guard it. 
So it's true. In some ways, Jesus is a troublemaker. And he doesn't want you just to be comfortable. He wants you to be ultimately fulfilled in his purpose and plan. And he may want to turn your life and your world inside out. And he's very good at it. I can speak from personal experience. He's really good at creating uh, you know, unrest in our life. But it's always to bring growth and to draw us closer to himself and to bring us to a place where we are ultimately in peace because we are rightly related and connected with the God of the universe. The reality is, if you, if you fear, you know, I don't want Jesus messing with my life, so I'm going to keep Jesus at a distance, and I'm going to be in control. That's what the Jews thought. The reality is, you really cannot be in control of all the circumstances of your life. Um, Jesus has power and authority to keep things in order. And throughout the Gospel of John, he raises the dead, he heals people, he calms the storm, he uh, feeds the 5,000. Jesus alone has power and authority to control the circumstances of our life. Well, there's another group, uh, that's the, the religious leaders. The leaders kind of take one slant on this story. But then there's the crowd. The crowd see things really interestingly quite differently. And it was the time of the Passover, and the way this worked, every year pilgrims would come from all over the world, literally, to celebrate Passover. It was the grand celebration and event in in Jerusalem. And uh, Josephus wrote that at least that one Passover that he took count of, I don't know how he did this, but he estimated there were 2.7 million pilgrims that came to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem wasn't a very big place. It's still not a real large city to this day. And if you can imagine just this huge throng of people. Now, a lot of scholars believe Josephus kind of tended to exaggerate things a bit, and he may have. But nonetheless, it wasn't just a small crowd that showed up. The place became jam-packed with people. The temple courtyard itself was about the size of three football fields. I mean, it was the size of a, of a small professional, I mean, a large professional football stadium. And at Passover, that whole place would be packed with people, just packed. Hundreds of thousands of people coming in and out of the temple courtyard. And every person there was talking about one thing. They were talking about Jesus. And they had heard about his miracles. They had heard about his teaching. Word of Lazarus' resurrection had, had stirred through the crowd. And everybody was talking about the same thing. Where's Jesus? Where is this guy? And many of these people had come perhaps from very far away, had not yet seen him teach or seen him work. And they wanted to see this Jesus guy. What were they looking for? Well, they, they were looking for uh, a king. They were looking for a savior. Uh, they wanted somebody who was going to come and do the exact opposite of what the, what the leaders were afraid of. The leaders wanted to keep things safe with Rome. Everybody else... They wanted, they wanted Rome to go away. And they envisioned this messianic king who would come and who would raise up this great army and crush Rome and set up a, a Jewish kingdom there in Israel. That's what they wanted. And they had their hopes pinned that this guy, surely this guy, if there was going to be a Messiah, would he do more than this? Raising people from the dead, healing people. This Jesus must be the guy. And so they were looking for a king. Someone who would come and solve all their problems, fix their social ills, 
lower taxes, you know, have good food distribution, bring about a healthier economy, better health insurance, good hospitals, you know, all the things that people look for in a government and a society. You know, it would fix all the problems and make everything good, make the government run smooth, uh, all these fighting, factioning, warring parties bring peace and harmony and oneness and they could all sing Kumbaya around the campfire together. It would be one big happy family. That's what they wanted. Uh, later, uh, we're going to jump into chapter 12. Later in the story, uh, word comes that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. And you really got to get the picture of this. Imagine one to two million people in and around Jerusalem Many of them would stay in places like Bethany because there was no lodging in Jerusalem. And Bethany uh, was the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Jesus had spent the night there. And the day of his triumphal entry, he leaves from Bethany and word starts spreading, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. And at that moment, the city emptied and the two-mile road from Jerusalem to Bethany instantly became lined with tens and thousands of people who wanted to get a picture of Jesus, who they think is coming as their king. And their hopes are on a Savior, but not the Savior that we think of, not the Savior who's going to come and die on the cross, but the Savior who is going to redeem Israel and restore it to its rightful place as a nation state and stand up to this Roman bully and kick out those Roman soldiers and kick out Herod and uh, set things right. And so they grab their palm branches and they line the road for two solid miles, thousands deep. And here comes Jesus, their king. And they shout out these, these sayings, Praise God, bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the king of Israel. Don't be afraid, people of Israel. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And they are chilling, cheering and celebrating because they are looking for a king and they're convinced that Jesus was it. Um, but you've got to also get the full picture here. Okay, now, if you're expecting Jesus to come as a king, a great political innovator, one who's going to overthrow the Roman army, who's going to set up a new kingdom, okay, you're going to be expecting a king coming with a great procession of soldiers. You know, men marching in formation, hundreds, maybe even thousands ahead and behind him. And, and you expect Jesus to come, you know, somewhat of a soldier, a stately, regal figure riding on a great white steed, coming in power and authority. And instead what we see is Jesus coming, 12 losers, a bunch of women, and a donkey. Okay, not quite the picture, all right? To kind of put it in perspective, imagine if the king of Thailand was coming into Chiang Mai, and you went out to sea, and you know how they do. You know how they do it here. You know they close all the roads. They got like 500 police cars and the whole motorcade thing. You know, well imagine that's what you're expecting to see—the flashing lights and all that stuff. And uh, uh, they close the road off, and here comes this this old guy on a rickety bicycle pedaling along, and he kind of goes by by himself. You go, well, that's the king. You go, that's kind of disappointing. Well, that's kind of the effect here. They're expecting this king, and here comes this guy riding on a donkey with these fishermen, you know, a bookkeeper, and a bunch of ladies. It's like, well, what kind of revolution is this, you know? We're going to cook him to death or something? You know, we're going we're to bake this big fancy dinner and you know, get him fat. And it's, what, what's going on here? 
And, and Jesus looked anything but regal and stately. Certainly not militant. Well, of course, the reality is that Jesus did not come to overthrow Rome, to set up a government, to lower taxes. He came to die. And the problem is they wanted a king, they wanted a savior, but they didn't understand what they needed saving from. They thought the problems were social. They thought the problems was high taxes and, and poor health insurance and poverty and economy. They didn't realize the real problem, the real enemy, was themselves. The salvation must first come to me. Because my greatest enemy is not the government or the state or some other country. My greatest enemy is me. Because I am wicked and sinful and I am doomed to eternal judgment before God because of sin in my life. Before salvation can come at any other level, salvation must first come to us personally and individually. You see, if Jesus had come and overthrown Rome and set up a new government and lowered taxes and, you know made the economy better, it wouldn't last very long because sinful people would soon try to get in power. Greedy people would take advantage of the system. People are the problem. We are the problem. And you see, they were looking for somebody to fix the problems outside when the problem really was them. And what Jesus came was first and foremost to save them from themselves, from their own sin, their own corruption, their own wickedness. And before he could transform society, he had to transform the hearts and lives of sinful, lost people. So, for that reason, a very short time later, this very same crowd was crying for Jesus to be crucified because he wasn't the king they expected. So ironically, in this story, the first group of people, the Pharisees and leaders, plot Jesus' death Eventually, this crowd ends up calling for Jesus' death. Um, And again, the question comes to us, what kind of Savior are we looking for? Are we really looking for a Savior who came first and foremost to save us from ourselves? Or do we just want a Savior who is going to fix everything around us and leave us alone? Well, the third group. The story goes on in chapter 12. So six days later, six days, I'm sorry, six days before the Passover began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, and Lazarus sat at the table with them. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it and, was, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with its fragrance. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who would betray him, said, That perfume was worth a small fortune. It should have been sold and given the money to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief who was in charge of the disciples' funds, and he often took some for his own use. Jesus said, Leave her alone. She did it in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but I will not be here with you much longer. Um, the disciples are another group in this story. And uh, in this account in John, it's represented most by, by Judas. It's interesting, interesting, the disciples were mostly in denial about Jesus' death. 
And in this account, it picks on Judas. But the reality is, all the disciples were living in denial that Jesus was about to die, even though he told it to them over and over again. Jesus said, by the way, I'm going to Jerusalem. When I go there, they're going to kill me. Okay? He's going to Jerusalem. Okay? It doesn't take a real genius to figure out Jerusalem, death, we're going to the Jerusalem, Jesus is going to die. But they were living in denial of all that. Um, and we get this picture here, Jesus is anointed by Mary, we'll come back to that in a minute. And uh, in the midst of this, Judas is complaining. He's going, man, you're wasting that money on Jesus. Okay, You're wasting it on Jesus, let's give it to the poor instead. And John gives the insight. Apparently, John and Judas were not like best friends. Both were disciples. Uh, you kind of get the picture that, that uh, John had not yet forgiven Judas. And pretty much in the Gospel, he paints him as one who is unforgivable because of his sin against Jesus in, in betraying him. And here he paints this evil villain guy who uh, only wanted the money because he was using it to fund his own personal pursuits. But he was basically a guy looking out for himself and uh, he was the bookkeeper of the treasury, he carried the money bag and he was you know, stealing money out to buy himself you know, gum and chocolate bars and cigarettes. I don't know what he was buying with it, but he was a bad guy, right? Well, you know, we look at Judas and, and certainly John looked at Judas as this evil, evil person, the betrayer of Christ, the one who turned the Savior over. Uh, who was in it only for his own personal gain. And clearly that's what Jesus, what, how Jude, Judas is described here. He was following Jesus simply for his own personal gain. It was for him a career choice, and a career that he hoped would advance him personally. When it didn't work out so well, he had no qualms going to the religious leaders and selling Jesus out because it advanced him personally. It got him some great personal gain and wealth. Um, I want you to see though that really what, what Judas was about is what really all people are about. Isn't everybody in our world, in our society today looking out for themselves? In fact, in our world, don't we actually give awards and prizes to people who do a good job of taking care of themselves? Don't we give you know, Employee of the Year awards to people who do this very thing and who do it well, who advance themselves and who can promote themselves and who can take care of themselves, who can look out for number one? Judas is, is doing what, what we call you know, kind of the, the American dream, to use the American context. The guy who can advance himself and do well and prosper himself in the company. He's got a good career going. Uh, we, we live for this. This is what life is about for in our world today, is getting ahead. In fact, uh, we, we, we even write our, our advertising slogans to reinforce this. Listen to some of our most, I looked up some of the most popular advertising slogans online. This is what, what it listed some of them. Have it your way. Who, 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 who can tell me the company? Have it your way. Burger King. There you go. Uh, it's everywhere you want to be. Visa. Man, you guys are good. You guys watch too much TV. Okay, I actually didn't know this one, but it's a good line. 
When you've got it, flaunt it. You know that one? Braniff Air, which I think actually went, went bankrupt. <laughs> so, so much for there. I guess probably they didn't have flaunted enough. Uh, okay, here's one. You ladies will know this one. Because I'm worth it. L'Oreal. Very good. Um, here's the one for the guys. The best a man can get. Gillette. Very good. Okay, last one. We really move our tail for you. It's an airline, Continental Airlines. Yeah, it's the message we get over. You are worth it. It's about you. You know, get ahead. Get all you can. You deserve it. It's, you, it belongs to you. You need to take it. That's what Judas was. We villainize him, but the reality is, it is what every person is, really, apart from Christ. Selfish, self-centered, self-driven beings who are looking out for the promotion of our own success and glory and advancement. Okay? That's pretty much what it means to live in the world. And Judas just happened to live that out in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, what about the other 11? Um, well, they weren't just standing by innocently. Now, John doesn't record, maybe because he was one of the 11 and was a bit ashamed. But in the other uh, accounts of the story, it reminds us that these guys were, were kind of in agreement with Judas. They were kind of going, yeah, what's the deal? We're kind of wasting things here. Uh, these guys, who was Jesus to them? Was Jesus any less of a career option for them? I don't think so. Now, of course, God did a great work of redemption later in the disciples. But at this point in their life, they were still kind of confused about this whole thing. Why was it so hard for them to accept Jesus' death? Well, I think mostly because it didn't go well for them personally. You know, they were in this as a career. They were looking for advancement and success. How do we know that? Well, they were arguing about who would be highest in the kingdom. They were bickering about who was going to get to be the boss over the other twelve. Who's going to get to sit at the right hand in the kingdom? Who's going to get the best cabinet post in the kingdom? Why were they in this? Well, because they thought they'd get something out of it. They thought it sounded like a good career option for them. So Jesus to them was a career opportunity. A way to advance themselves, to get success, and, and to get something out of the package deal. In fact, Peter, uh, when Jesus is finally arrested, Peter whips out his sword and goes to battle. And he, you know, t- thankfully he was a very poor soldier and he missed the guy's head and whacked off his ear. And uh, he's ready to fight to advance his career. But when Jesus said, no, it's not about, you know, I- I'm going to die. And an hour later, Peter can't even admit he knows Jesus because the rules of the game have changed so much. And he sees his career going down the tubes, and he's lost and confused. Um, They could not and would not see Jesus going to the cross because that's not what they signed up for. How about us? Is Jesus, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to me? Is he just a job? You know, as a pastor, I have to ask myself that question a lot because it's so easy because, you know, I get paid to do this. I, I make money off this deal. Um, 
I advance by this program? Is Jesus just a job to me? You know, a lot of you are in full-time Christian work. Is Jesus just a job to you? I one time was counseling a missionary who was going down and things were bad and his life was self-destructing and he said to me, you know, I can't do anything else. This is all I know how to do. Is that all this is? Is it just I don't know how to do anything else and I can make a living at this so I'm a professional Jesus follower? Is that all it is? Of course, there's nothing wrong with making your living this way. There's nothing wrong with full-time ministry. Every person, whether you are, quote, in full-time ministry or not, should should be working for God. And working for God is a good thing. But is that all it is? Is that all Jesus is to us, is a job, is a way to make a living and to you know, advance and have a position and have some respect? A lot of pastors, a lot of pastors I know, and I fight this with myself, that I do this because of the honor and the attention it can bring me, not because of other reasons. Well, the last person that we want to look at, the hero of the story, um, who did not plot to kill Jesus, did not cheer for his death, certainly was not in denial of his death, but actually in this story is seen anointing Jesus for his burial, was Mary. And let me read her story again. Six days before the Passover... Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. And the dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha was there serving, and Lazarus was there eating. That's my own paraphrase. And and Mary was there. And she took a 12-ounce jar of very, very expensive perfume made from the essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with its fragrance. Um, Jesus had been in isolation. He'd got word that the leaders were out to kill him, and he fled to the wilderness. But a week before Passover, he knew the time had come. He comes to Bethany. He comes to the house of, of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And while he's there in Bethany, somebody throws a dinner for him where he's the guest of honor. It's probably not actually at Lazarus's house. It would be a little weird to mention that Lazarus was a guest there if it was his house. It would be kind of odd. Um, most likely somebody else threw the dinner. Uh, but, but Lazarus had been invited. Uh, Martha was there, still serving. If you know the earlier stories of Martha and Mary, she's still in service mode. Good thing it's good to serve God. Uh, for Mary, Jesus was an opportunity to serve. Still hadn't quite got the heart of it yet. Lazarus was there eating. Poor guy had been dead four days, you know, kind of a, uh, an imposed fast. Um, he was hungry. I don't know. He was there for the food. Um, and Mary was there. And it says that Mary brought in this jar of perfume. And it says 12 ounces. Imagine really a large-sized bottle of Pepsi. You know, a 12-ounce bottle of Pepsi. Imagine a a container about that size filled with this very rare perfume. It was spikenard. It was imported from India. 
Uh, the Greek word that's used here means it was pure, genuine, authentic. It was extremely, extremely expensive. Uh, Judas later tallies the price at about a year's wages. Okay, imagine, and this is some hefty perfume. You know, I mean, I bought, I bought dye. You know, every once in a while I buy perfume for my wife. And, I mean, it's like, you know, it's like, a, it's like a month's salary for this stuff. You know, it's expensive. But that's nothing compared to this stuff. A year's salary. Okay, expensive, expensive stuff. To make matters worse, the way this worked, it, in those days they couldn't preserve these fragrances. It was in an absolutely sealed box or bottle. When you broke the, the, the neck of the jar off, uh, it could not be resealed and it, it would do no good to reseal it. Because once it was exposed to air, it was only good for a few hours or days, and then it was no good anymore. So this was a one-shot deal, okay? A year's worth of salary to to buy this thing, and you get to use it once, okay? And then it's gone. It's done with. And and so she takes this, this very, very expensive gift. And you might ask, why did she have it? Uh, it's, it's not indicated that Mary and Martha and Lazarus were at all wealthy. And in fact, kind of an interesting note, and it's something that puzzles me, you know, her brother had just died a couple weeks before. <clears throat> and one of the uses for this perfume was to honor a dead person by putting it on their body. And it was a way to really honor the death of someone. And I'm thinking, why does she still have this? You know, her brother just died. She didn't use it on her brother. Okay. I don't know if she was too cheap or I don't know what. I mean, she loved her brother. She was very sad that he had died. But she would not use it on her brother when he died. She was hanging on to it. Why? What was so special about this stuff that she was hanging on to it? Well, some, we don't know for sure, but some scholars speculate that she probably was saving this as her dowry. That a gift that expensive and that, that costly would have paid her dowry for when she got married. Now think about that. Here's a woman who's bringing not only this very expensive gift, but who's bringing a gift that really is her future. Okay, if she dumps this out, you know, she may never get married. Uh, If it's a matter of just financial security, she's giving away the thing that is her financial security. Interestingly, the leaders and the Pharisees crucified... Thank you very much, Jesus. Because they feared for their future. And yet she was willing to pour away her future for Jesus. Um, It really puts into perspective how precious and special it is what she did. She was by this very act, entrusting her whole future and laying it out before Jesus, knowing that he was the one who held her future in his hands. And it says that she anointed his feet. She didn't just pour it out, but it uses a special word here that means anointed, to anoint something. And they anointed for several purposes, but in this context it clearly was to honor Jesus. It was a way to show his worthiness to show and honor him as, as really this incredibly special person in her life. To pay tribute to Jesus. Uh, and of course, Jesus, 
identifies it as an anointing that is in preparation for his burial, for his death. He says to, to Judas, leave her alone. She is doing this and keeping this as a way of preparing my body for burial, honoring my death and my burial by this gift. Uh, it's interesting, too, that John focuses on Jesus' feet. The other Gospels record that she also anointed his head. Uh, it was 12 ounces. It was a lot of perfume. You know, he may, she may have put this everywhere. I don't know how much she anointed. But John focuses on the feet. And again, it's this picture, especially in Asian, Asian cultures, we know how kind of weird they are about feet. And to, to go to someone's feet and put yourself at someone's feet is a position of extreme humility. And it's not so much that Mary was putting herself down, but it was an act that raised Jesus up. It was an act of saying, He is high above me. He is Lord and Master. He is King. But not just a king who came to fix the political problems, but he is Lord and Master over my life. And I put myself at his feet and I anoint his feet as one who is a loyal subject who acknowledges him as the sovereign Lord over my life. And then finally it says that she wipes his feet with her hair. Now honestly, this is just getting on the point of being weird. And honestly, if you were there watching it, you would have thought, this is weird. And this is just really crossing some lines here. This is like very inappropriate. Well, why? Well, because it's an extremely intimate thing to do. You know, if a girl comes up to you and starts putting her hair on you, you know, that's just like, that's just like too close, you know? If it's your wife, that's a good thing. But some other girl, it's like, whoa, hold on. Okay, keep your hair to yourself. All right? Uh, because it's an intimate thing. It is an intimate thing. And in fact, uh, it could be very easily seen as a very inappropriate act on her part. And of course, you know, the world, people who don't know Jesus have made a big deal about you know, Jesus having affairs with all these ladies and not understanding the intimacy of their relationship. And perhaps even in that room there were some who thought, you know, what kind of inappropriate relationship is Jesus having with this lady? But the God who knows every heart and knows every motive knew that her heart and her motive was 100% pure. There was nothing sexual or immoral in it. But it was a picture of the incredible intimacy this woman had with Jesus in her heart. Not an inappropriate kind of intimacy, but a kind of intimacy that I really believe should be at the heart of what our relationship with Jesus is about. It is what Jesus wants with all of us. A relationship that is that close and intimate and personal. Deeply intimate. As our very best friend and companion. As one with whom we could share those kind of intimate things uh, as friends, as brothers, as a, as a parent-child. That kind of relationship. It was a picture of this incredible intimacy she had with Jesus. Why? Because she loved him. Who was Jesus to Mary? Well, quite simply, as you get this picture, Jesus was the love of her life. <clears throat> there was no one more precious to this lady than Jesus. Not because he messed up her life, which he probably did. Not because he was going to come be the king and fix everything, which she knew he would 
Not because she just saw him as the savior of her problems, which he was, but far beyond all that. At a much deeper level, in all that stuff, Jesus was a living, personal being who cared deeply for her, and she knew it. And she responded back to Jesus' love by loving him back. Out of the, out of the, the depths of her heart, Amazing, beautiful picture of her anointing his feet and wiping his feet with her hair and this tender, gentle act of devotion and love. An amazing picture. And it says that the fragrance filled the entire house. What a great picture. Uh, Now, not everybody appreciated the fragrance, sadly, but nobody missed it. There was not a person in that room, not a person in that house who missed her devotion and love for Jesus. You know, God calls us to be a light and a witness for him. He calls us to be a fragrant aroma of his love. How do we do that? Well, we don't do it by being a job. That's for sure. We don't do it out of a sense of duty or commitment. You know, she didn't she didn't bring this gift going, well, you know, I feel, I feel so guilty. I think I'll dump this very expensive perfume all, Jesus, all over Jesus' feet out of a sense of obligation. It's not what it was. It was a sweet aroma because it was a gift of love between Mary and Jesus. And the reality is that if you and I walk in this kind of love relationship with Jesus, it puts off a, an incredible aroma of grace that fills the house. That fills the house. And people won't miss it. Now, they may misunderstand it. They may think you're crazy. They may, they may not get it. They may laugh at you because of it. But they won't miss it. When you have a heart-to-heart love relationship like this with Jesus. Um, and that fragrance goes beyond just the house. It's interesting... It says that she wiped her hair with it and I can picture after the dinner was over and she left and everybody went home and she went home and her, her hair and probably even her clothes were filled with the fragrance of her gift. The amazing thing is that, that what she gave to Jesus she actually received herself. The gift of love that she poured out for Jesus actually came back to her and she wore it home. And everywhere she went, probably, I doubt if she washed her hair for a month. I don't know. Uh, As long as that scent was there, she kept it with her as a reminder of what she had given to Jesus, but in exchange what he had given back to her. And and that's the picture of what Jesus wants to have with us. A love relationship where his love flows into us, we reflect it back toward him, and then he overflows it back toward us again. You know, you can't, cannot out-love God. You cannot out-give God. And for every little token of love that we give to Him, He pours it back to us a hundred times over. To, Jesus, to, to Mary, Jesus was the love of her life. And because of that, she was the only one in this whole story who was really in the right place at the right time preparing Jesus for his burial. And she was a huge blessing to him, as well as he to her. 
You know, uh, Jesus wants us to walk in this kind of place. And I don't really understand it so well, so I have to put it in human terms. And for me, it's the closest I have to this kind of relationship is, of course, with Denise, my wife. And uh, I learned early on in our married life that it was a good thing to give her gifts and that that really made her happy. But I discovered the hard way that it was good not to give her gifts that you plug in. Right? I think the first one was, a, was actually a vacuum cleaner. And it was really uh, not a good gift. And I, I came to discover that that's because it was a gift that kind of sent mis, mixed messages. And, you know, uh, and so I stopped doing that. And I found that a much better gift, ones that would make her a lot happier, was things like jewelry. Things that sparkle and shine and glitter and cost a lot of money. And um, not that she cared so much for the cost, but uh, it meant something to her if I honored her with that gift. And, you know, I don't, I don't go around thinking, oh, man, it's such a drag. I've got to go buy my wife a diamond bracelet. I just hate it, you know. But uh, that's what I've got to do because I'm her husband. It doesn't work that way. And if I gave it with that spirit, it wouldn't be well appreciated. Okay, instead, if I think, man, I, I'm so happy that God gave me such a wonderful wife and I want to bless her and I'm so thankful for her. And so I want to honor her out of, as an expression of my love for her. And out of that joy, I give that gift that may cost me a great deal. But it's not, it's not a burden because of my love for her. And, and the, the point of this story is that Jesus wants our whole life to operate this way. He doesn't want our service and our gifts to him to be a burden. He was going, you know, we've got to give our 10% offering and we're broke this month and just hate this whole offering thing. But, you know, that's what we've got to do to be a good Christian, so I guess we'll do it. That's not what God wants. He wants the gift to come out of the overflow of love and joy of our heart. He doesn't want us to serve, you know, well, you know, we're missionaries and we've got to serve God and fill our time until we can retire and then enjoy life, right? But we might as well do it doing something meaningful so that our life's not wasted. So we'll just kill ourselves for God. Hooray. Hallelujah. Is that what God wants? I don't think so. He wants us to be filled with joy and love and worship of Him. And we do it because we love Him so much we can't imagine spending our life in any other way. Where it is a delight and a joy to give Him our life and our time and our resources, our very heart. Because it's supposed to be a love relationship with Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this really is just one of the most beautiful pictures in all of Scripture of how life is supposed to work in relationship to you. And yet, Father, we get it so turned upside down. And the truth is, if we are honest with ourselves, too often we see you as a troublemaker who's just messing up our life, who's putting demands and rules on us, making us give things up and and we resent it and we feel guilty and maybe we do it or maybe we don't but it's for the wrong reasons or it's just a career or a job a way to advance our position to make a living 
Or maybe even it's like Martha, it's a way to serve and, and that's an important thing. But Lord, if we put those things first, and those can be good things, but if we put those first, we miss the whole point. That, that God so loved the world, so loved the world, that he gave his son. That the whole of Christianity is about the God of the universe expressing his love toward us. And that what you desire back from us is simply our love, given humbly, exalting you, sitting at your feet and honoring you out of our love for you, not out of duty or obligation or service or job, but out of joy and delight at being in love with the God of the universe. Lord God, we pray that by your Spirit you would do that work in our heart, that we would know what it means to live and walk and breathe in a love relationship with Jesus. We ask that you would, you would pull our heart towards yours and teach us how to love you better like Mary did. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I think what Mary's done there is the highest form of worship one can do to waste everything on Jesus. Shall we all stand? close to you never let me go I lay it all down again to hear you say that I'm your friend you are else will do cause nothing else could take your place to feel the warmth of your place